Run, young lady, run. Run. Hi, everybody. Hey, we are glad that you are here. Anyone's first time tonight here? Anybody? Oh, no way. Oh, awesome. Welcome. We're glad you're here. It has been such an interesting ride. Uh, First of all, thank you to the Mulehoffs, who are awesome. We're so glad they were here last week. And uh, I was, uh, you know, months and months and months before uh, we had decided to do this, I had uh, committed to speaking at uh, a denominational leadership. There's a church denomination. It's got 66 million people a part of it, and it's their national leadership deal. And, um, and so what a great privilege to do that, but I missed you. Um, and uh, as I know Tim and Noreen, what a great privilege to have them here. Now, tonight what we're going to do is I'm going to talk maybe 10 minutes, and then we'll just get into Q's and A's. We'll take new ones. Uh, I'm going to start off with 11 that we've uh, accumulated over the course. We went back and read through all of the ones that you have sent. And um, we try to pick out the ones that we think are going to be most universal and relevant, so if for some reason we don't get to yours, it's not because we don't love you um, or think that your question is important. We're just trying to, when you're talking to hundreds of folks, you try to pick out the ones that are going to be most relevant. Also, um, uh, next week, okay, listen, next week is the point of the whole thing. Next week, we're going um, to redecorate this space, um, and uh, we've invited our elders, our prayer team our care folks, we're going to invite our whole church to be a part of this, and, um, I, and I believe, you, you need to know, I, I, uh, I really do believe that God heals people. I believe that God delivers people. I believe that we're whole people, and so our problems are physical and emotional and mental and spiritual, and, uh, and that part of what it means to walk in freedom is to make lines in the sand every now and again. And we don't think there's anything magic about a healing service different than any other kind of service. But we do think there is something very, very powerful. When people gather together in humility to acknowledge and confess and turn from darkness into light. And this doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It just means that we're coming again to the place where we receive the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus. This isn't a one-time thing. This is an introduction to a whole way of living. So um, to say that I would highly encourage you to attend would be an understatement. This is going to be really significant in the life of our church, and so I invite you to be here. Uh, Lastly, I want to remind you of what we've been up to these past, I don't know, nine weeks now. Uh, We have an answer to every question or done some of these topics even close to justice, but our goal has simply been to place sexuality, love, relationships in the overarching narrative of the scriptures. And the narrative of the scriptures is simply this, that you, you, and everybody else in this room are loved created and the product of intelligence, design, and purpose. You have dignity and value simply in virtue of being human. You are made in God's image. And you are so valuable 
and so loved that God would send his only son to redeem you. And so the biblical narrative, as we've seen like every week, begins in Genesis 1 and 2 by saying to be human is good, to be created is good, to be sexual is good. And yet, each and every one of us know that something is tragically and horribly wrong. Not just out there, but in here, right? Not one of us has made it to whatever age we are, having walked perfectly in the light. And so we all come proclaiming and living in a common brokenness. Paul will say, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to humanity. And so we all come as people who are in the process of either having fully surrendered or are thinking about surrendering our lives to this Jesus. But we come to that place not because we just abstractly think, yes, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, of course. We come to this place because we're confronted with the darkness inside of us and the darkness of our world. And so this Jesus comes not to condemn the world, but to save it. But in order to save it, He must convince us we actually need saving. And so our culture, as we have said, is a culture of slaves that believe they're free. And the hardest people to convince they're slaves are people who think they're free. And so we have very painstakingly tried to make this simple case. That God's intention for sexuality and relationships is pure, it's good, it's beautiful. It was not to be a burden, but to be a gift. And that has been corrupted in all kinds of different ways in this room. For some of us, it's opposite sex attraction that we can't control. Some of us, it's same-sex attraction that we can't control. Some of us is uh, a pornography addiction. And not just men struggle with this, but women too. For some of us, it's the infidelity that lurks, lurks in our hearts. For some of us, we've made such tragic mistakes leading to this moment. We wonder if we ever could be truly redeemed and rescued and made clean again. Some of us live in really difficult marriages and wish we were single. And some of us are single and wish we were married. And so we sit in common in this place. Not one of us in a superior position over another. All of us created, loved, and broken. And so we just simply proclaim the good news of this Jesus. My little boy and I, my little boy, he's 10 and he's a monster. <laughs> we, we were out to breakfast. On mornings when he doesn't have soccer practice, we go out to breakfast. We take a board game sequence, math edition, because my wife is a math teacher and she's psycho when it comes to this stuff. And so we go, I mean, I want to teach him to play Texas Hold'em, and, you know, there's none of that. And, uh, and so my little boy and I, and then we do Bible study uh, over breakfast. And, you know, how do you do Bible study with your 10-year-old who really just wants to play Xbox? And, and so I, he and I were going over the story where Jesus touches the leper, the, uh, the leprosy was considered to make some, somebody unclean, and you would never touch a leper because it was thought that unclean infected clean. And so we had a salt shaker and a pepper shaker. The salt shaker was clean, and the pepper shaker was unclean. And for you pepper fans, I apologize. But, but So we're talking about how it was thought that if unclean and clean touch, 
unclean winds. But the thing that was so unique about Jesus is that when He touched something that was unclean, His clean overpowered any unclean He came into contact with. And I told my 10-year-old little boy that, listen, it doesn't matter what you do, Jesus can make you clean. And he has this great line. He says, you know, you should really tell the church that. That's really a good story. Okay. Okay, I think I will. And and what was so sweet about that was that in that moment, and if you're around 10-year-olds, you know you fight for these moments and you never know when they're going to come. When he kind of opens up and you see there's something planted in that moment. And what was planted is the idea that he can be loved in his badness and in his darkness. And that Jesus can touch him and make him clean. And if you hear anything over the last nine weeks, it is that Jesus can touch you and make you clean. It's not just that he forgives your sins, but he can restore and redeem. That doesn't always mean remove consequences. It doesn't mean that he zaps us into perfection. But it does mean that restoration is possible. And so we proclaim to a room full of broken people, you don't have to stay in darkness. And part of coming out of darkness is simply telling the truth. And so we've talked very honestly about masturbation and pornography and premarital sex and extramarital sex. And we've tried to make the case, purity costs a great deal. But impurity costs more. Walking well before God costs a great deal. But living in darkness costs more. And so with that, we're going to dive into some questions. And all standard disclaimers apply. We pray a lot for you and for the stories behind these questions because we realize all we can share with you is the community of the church at its best and the hope power and presence of the resurrected Jesus. We can give you good advice. We can talk about wisdom. But at the end of the day, the goal of this is to make you hungry and thirsty for something better so that you wouldn't settle for the counterfeits. That's all this is. In the same way as I'm trying to diet, the goal of dieting isn't to just be against food, but it's to taste, develop a taste for the right food. The goal isn't to just walk around saying, okay, okay, I have to will myself to purity. The goal is that you actually begin to hunger for it so that it's not something outside of you, it's coming from inside of you. As Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I've come to see that that's true. So I'm going to go through 11 questions that we have ahead of time. You are welcome to ask some as we go. Are you ready? Why don't you wear a wedding ring? I got, a, I got, I got, that was repeated every single week. All right, so here's the reason. My wife and I, we have an open marriage. No, 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 no. No, no. no. I mean, here's the dumb thing. I lost it. I don't like wearing jewelry. My wife bought me another one, and it is massive, and to wear it, I'd have to tie string around it like I was back in high school, and, and I don't. I know I need to, and I need to get it resized, 
Uh, and that's the only reason. Okay. Oh, thank you. Why, why are you clapping exactly? Because what? Because I will put it on? I need to put, I know. Someone, someone with this level of handsomeness should not be walking around. And I mean, I get that that's what you're saying. I understand that. That's why I preach with my shirt on. Now, if the outcome of a high school relationship will most likely not be the couple getting married, then what's the point? And how should a high schooler go about the whole dating and relationship stuff? Hey, that's a great question. First of all, I need you to know something. I'm a really big fan of dating. And here's the reason. In dating, if you do it wisely, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about what you like and get along with and what you don't like and don't get along with. You learn to handle sexual temptation. And you learn a great deal about handling risk, commitment, failure, rejection, now, I think the ways that we date are horrible. I mean, I really do. And we've talked a bunch about this, so I'm not going to repeat it all, except to say if you really want to be healthy, it just takes three things. Time, restraint, and a community of people who will walk with you in this. That's it. Time, restraint, and community. Don't introduce the sexual part, the physical part. Immediately delay that as long as possible. Wait until you learn the person's name. Remember one of the first weeks we talked about name represents character? Yeah, I don't mean... <laughs> we met online and I only know you as like hijack 446. No, I don't mean that. But name represents character. So you actually have to wait to learn the person's character, not just what they tell you when they dress up and put their best foot forward when they're trying to woo you, but what they're really, really like. So is there a point to dating in high school? Absolutely. But I would so encourage you not to look at your friend's example about, examples about dating and think that's how it should go. Take your time. I love, I love the question because the question says, most likely the dating I'm doing in high school won't end up in marriage. That's true. That's true. But there still is a point. Now, you shouldn't feel bad if you're not dating. So the lie is on the other end, too, that says, well, if you're not dating, you're, you're, you're going to be alone forever or anything like that. That's not true. You don't have to date to find significance. But if you choose to, that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But you have to be so careful. The way that we date these days is toxic. It absolutely is toxic. How far is really too far in a dating relationship? And isn't it interesting, that's the way we always word the question, right? It's never like, hey, how pure, should, how, how pure should I be? How pure does God want me? It's always, so where's the line and how close can I get, right? Which just, it just, it just speaks to my heart and our hearts, right? I mean, that we're always, especially in this area, I just want to, okay, so it, I, I can just dance on that line a little bit. And, and here's my view. And feel free to, you know, come up with your own. But, but here's what I, I think is wise, right, 
And what I would suggest is argued in the Song of Songs, do not arouse or awaken love until it can be fulfilled in a holy way. What that means is that the sex drive was never meant to be interrupted so that you have these artificial boundaries. God wired you so that once you rev that engine, it's intended to go all the way. And all the people said, yes, that is absolutely how it feels. And so, so when we have this, okay, well, you know, we're going to make out and, and kind of grind on each other and, you know, and then we'll just stop. What are you, idiots? I mean, come on. That's not the way God made you. So, my wife and I, we, we, of course, we were both 29, so old, totally old, and frisky, totally frisky, and, and there were times um, arousing and awakening love, um, we couldn't hold hands and not want to do more. There were times we could kiss and it was safe, and then there are other times, I mean, there was literally one time, I know this is so dumb, this is so dumb. There was one time, um, I was alone in my apartment, um, I texted some guys that she was coming over, because we tried to make a rule not to be alone in my apartment, because there was the shocking correlation that we saw. The amount of time we were alone, and the later it got, the more we struggled, right? So, so we tried to just date in public, but she was coming over, I don't remember the reason, so I text some guys that, hey, she's over, ask me how it went. And then I proceeded to sit here, and she proceeded to sit way over there, and we had a conversation. Now, you're thinking, that just sounds ridiculous. And absolutely, it is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. But I knew there was no way I could kiss her and not want more. So for us, we fought the battle before the battle. So we would just do things like date in public. We broke up, actually, to give ourselves time because it was so intense. She could not keep her hands off of me. I didn't wear a wedding ring then, either. And, uh, and so, um, and you know, I'm just playing. I mean, it, yeah, she's awesome. And there's a reason she doesn't show up here. You understand this. She just says every night, what did you tell him? What did you tell him? Um, so I think she's actually going to come and share her story next week. We talked about that and uh, share a bit of her story because I've referenced it a couple of times. Um, and it's, it's, it's been our journey together. It's been really, really powerful. So particularly for those of you who've blown it, which is all of us, but for those of you who've blown it and you think you're damaged goods and wonder whether or not God could ever restore you, this is a powerful story. So what was the question? How far is too far? Man, I went off on a tangent on that one. Um, do not arouse or awaken love. And you say, man, that sounds, that sounds really hard. Yep, you have to believe that it's worth it. I'm telling you it's worth it. You, it, does, it, does purity cost? You bet. Does impurity cost more? Yeah. Yep. Yep. In the days of the Bible, people were getting married at 15, 16, and even younger. Right? I get this question all the time. Now that people aren't getting married until their late 20s and 30s, how are they supposed to last until marriage without having sex? 
And then here's another question related to it. What does it look like to be single and sexual? Which you are, right? It's not like you cease being sexual. So the first thing we say is this. Sexuality is way bigger than what you do with your genitals. Sorry to be blunt, but I don't have another way of saying this. Right? It's sexuality is way more than just the act of intercourse or the act of what leads to intercourse. Sexuality is, is something that's fundamental to human identity. It has to do with our desire to reconnect what was separated. It's like there, there are human emotions that give us tons of energy. Anger is one of those, right? Anger. When you're angry, do you ever feel fatigued? No, it's like nuclear fuel for your soul, right? Sexual energy is the same way. So, so you take someone like Mother Teresa. Was she not sexual at all? Or did she channel all of that energy in a certain direction? See, the lie is to think she lived a horrible and incomplete life because she never had sex, at least to my knowledge. But we would say, and have been saying the whole time, listen, brothers and sisters, we have urges, but we're not the sum of those urges. It is possible to actually live not always saying yes to how you feel. And I know that's crazy for those of you who are younger because your entire life is built around saying yes to how you feel. Right? You look at your closet full of shoes. What shoes am I going to wear today? What, what, what clothes am I going to wear today? I have a whole big cabinet of breakfast cereal. What breakfast cereal do I want today? What music do I want to listen to? The entire world is bent to run on your desire. Right? And so when it comes to this, and now we're arguing there's something bigger than your desire that should be calling the shots, it just feels so artificial. It feels so unfair. But what we've been trying to suggest is that, that that submission to something bigger is what leads to freedom, ironically enough. That the worst guides to behavior are your feelings. Because they will lead you astray every time. Why? Because the scriptures teach we are bent. And we hunger to find life in things that can't provide it. So... If the question is, what does it look like to be single and sexual? It looks like this. Okay? Or if the question is, hey, well, back in the day, they were like getting married at 15. And now, you know, I'm, I, I was 29. I was a virgin. So if you don't think I know exactly what it's like, you're crazy. I know exactly. I guarantee there's no one here friskier than I was. I guarantee it. Do you realize baldness is a sign of too much testosterone? Do you understand this? That's science, baby. So none of you can look me in the eye and say, you don't know what it's like. I know what it's like. And I know what it costs to live that way. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it is utterly worth it. And so the invitation is no matter how you come here tonight from this point forward to simply say, I will not settle. And if you're doing it out of guilt, out of fear, or out of shame, you'll never succeed. If you're doing it because you're actually hungering for something better, now we're talking. So how do you live with unfulfilled desires? Because that's really the question. How do I be single and sexual, have these desires, what do I do with them? 
How, if I'm in my 20s and you're telling me I can't act out sexually, or the Bible's telling me I can't act out sexually, then what do I do with these things? A couple of thoughts. There are three options with unfulfilled desires. Number one, you can run to them and let them have their way. In which case, they will grow more powerful over you. Because desire, the way it works, corrupted, desire never plateaus. It always wants more. And in that way, sexuality is is really like chemical dependency. You start out with recreational drugs, but pretty soon you're doing stuff that you never thought you'd be doing. Why? Because it takes more to give you that rush. Porn is the classic example of this. It used to be just women in swimsuits. Now it has to be nudity. Now it has to be more than nudity, but people engaging in the sex act. And now it has to be really you know, fetishy kind of bondage stuff. I mean, and you just think, how did I end up here? Well, it's because desire never stays plateaued, right? So we've talked about that darkness in prison. So one option is just to give yourself to it. Another option is to pretend like you don't have any, right? And that's the church's favorite option because disciples of Jesus don't walk around frisky, married godly men and women in marriage wouldn't actually be attracted to somebody outside of their marriage, right? I mean, godly men would never be disappointed in their sex lives. Godly women would never be disappointed with their husband's performance. I mean, you just go all of these lies, and what happens is you have the angel or the animal syndrome we talked about the first night. We're either ruled by our desires or we're enslaved to them. And Jesus presents a third option. And the fact that you and I don't believe it just shows how crazy we are. So I love what Paul says. And I hate what Paul says. Now, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like those who do not know God. And in in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Now, Paul does something he calls the church family, And sinning sexually against another disciple of Jesus is sinning against a brother or sister in Jesus is the idea. You're sinning against a family member. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. (laughs) Now, how many of you listen to that and go, that's impossible? Right? I mean, there's utterly no way. And it's true if you look at this purely in religious terms and moralistic terms for like just trying harder, absolutely. But the gospel is just that that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and that you can actually learn one of the fruit of the Spirit is self control. And could I offer you this radical thought that it's actually possible to say no to your body? 
You know where I'm having to learn this? In dieting. This is the season of pumpkin pie. I love pumpkin pie. You know what my skinny friends tell me? And I hate my skinny friends. They just say, listen, just don't eat so much. Well, thanks. Is that, is that helpful? No, is it true? Absolutely. Right? But for those of us who've acquired a taste for the sweet things and not the broccoli things, there's a little bit more work in a similar way. Right? Just walking around telling people, hey, don't masturbate. Hey, don't sleep around. Hey, don't have affairs. That doesn't do anything. But I firmly believe the reason it doesn't feel possible is we've been too influenced by a culture that says it is impossible. And your desires are your destiny. So I hope somewhere in there I answered the questions. How do I start a conversation with a partner in a relationship if I know they are secretly hiding their sin in pornography and masturbation? First of all, I don't know what the word partner means. Does that mean boyfriend-girlfriend? Does that mean committed relationship? Does that mean married? I don't know what that means. And so it depends a little bit on what that word means on how I'd approach the person. Secondly, how did you find out? Were you stalking? No, really. I mean... You know, I I was dating a girl once. I found her diary. I did. I did. I did. I looked at it. And discovered she wasn't really interested in me. So that was good to know. But I know. I know. I can't understand it either. So some of it depends on how you found out about this. But the last thing is this. If this is somebody that you have long-term potential with, this is somebody that you think is worth the battle, then what I would do, and this is, just, this is just Mike, I think giving people letters and notes is the best way to broach those subjects because you're not confronting and forcing them to react without time and space to do so. And so in this instance, I would write a letter that just says it breaks my heart to write this. It seems that you are hiding this. And I want to have a conversation sometime about it. Whenever you're ready, I want to have a conversation about it. Because here's the thing. Secrets kill relationships. You can't keep secrets. You just can't. And if you are, may I invite you, may I urge you, may I implore you to come out of darkness into light, whatever the consequences. Psalm 32 is such a powerful, powerful psalm where David talks about the fact that he had all of this junk inside of him and his body, he says, it just groaned and it wasted away for the weight of his secrets. And so, brothers and sisters, there just comes a time. Now, if you, this is a new relationship. This is, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of caveats I'd give, but that's kind of the idea. If someone says they were born gay or born that way, is that possible? How would you respond to that? First of all, I... Um, Above all, I want to be really kind. Um, and so uh, I, I've, I've just encountered a number of people in my life who are embracing or wrestling through um, homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, I mean, all sorts of 
a continuum of all sorts of things. And, and I hope I provide a safe place where we can have a good conversation back and forth. And I'll say, okay, so, so how do you understand this? And what do you think about this? And they'll give me all of the stuff, uh, literature, resources, and otherwise. And I spend a lot of time reading it. And I think there, there are even non-Christian scientists that are saying quite conclusively, there, we don't yet have a biological, genetic, like predetermined marker that causes people. However, there are indications of some other things that happen in utero that could be markers. Certain hormones that are present or absent. And obviously there's a huge... Um, reason for the quest, both from the pro side and the against side, right? In my experience, talking to a lot of different people, I found a couple that said they have chosen it. The vast majority have said they did not choose this. That they had an awakening at puberty, and instead of it being directed towards the opposite sex, it was directed towards people of the same gender. So, and, and then they'll go on to talk about the shame, the guilt, the horrible things that people have done to them, said to them, and they'll say, I wouldn't have chosen this. In fact, I've prayed for years that God would take it away. So I believe that for some people, this wasn't chosen. For whatever reason, nature or nurture, I have one really good friend that was abused sexually when he was young, and he looks at that and says, you know, that's what happened. I have other friends that just simply say, oh, I just kind of woke up, hit puberty, and this is where my attraction went. I'm not aware enough of all of the scientific literature to know how to respond to some of the specific things except to say, neither side is happy with where the evidence is right now, okay? My point is always this. I was born with no control over the hormones that started raging at 11 years of age. And yet I am still called to place them under something bigger. And I would say we all find ourselves in that exact same place. Now, I, I agree, same-sex attraction is different in a number of ways. And my same-sex attracted friends will say to me, well, yeah, but you have an outlet for that. The Bible gives me no outlet Culture doesn't give me an outlet for that. I mean, you can, you can make that argument all day, but I don't have an outlet, right? That's the response. But I first simply say, hey, your desires aren't your destiny. And for, for folks that have an alcoholic gene, for folks that have, um, you know, some genetic capacity in one way or another, I mean, I think in every way, if we identified a murder gene, which some have, by the way. Some have argued there's actually a predisposition genetically to violence. And that if we could eradicate that gene, we could eradicate murder. Now let's say we find one of those. At that point, are we just going to say, hey, whatever comes natural is good? No. We can't make that argument anywhere else, and we can't make it here. Next question. And as always, people will disagree with me left and right. So... What should I do if I'm attracted to the same sex? Lay down my sexuality, convert, be single and celibate forever? I mean, do you hear the desperation in that? And this is, this is the struggle. Okay, let's say 
The Bible does say, this is not a viable option for a disciple of Jesus. What am I going to do then? And let's say I pray, and I go to therapy, and I confess my sins, and the desire is still there. What happens then? And I thought this was really interesting. What should I do if I'm attracted to the same sex? Lay down my sexuality. Well, that's impossible, because you're a sexual being no matter what. Convert. So, I don't know if this means this is being asked from someone who's not a disciple of Jesus. If you come to Jesus expecting that in every case, in every instance, he will turn people who have same-sex attraction immediately into people that don't have same-sex attraction, you will be disappointed. I myself have wrestled with a struggle with pornography. I've prayed many, many times that God would take that away. And there's been victory but it still lurks, like I've talked about. I have to live a lifestyle that is very, very restrictive. Why? Not because I'm a raging pornographer, but because I could be. So, convert, yes. If you haven't converted, please convert. But don't do it to get rid of same-sex attraction. Do it because Jesus is beautiful and compelling. That's the reason you do it. And then be single and celibate forever. It is true, Jesus talks about people who are called by God to be single and celibate. That is absolutely true. But there's another option that's not mentioned here. And that is, go for it. And I just want to highlight the difference between going for it and single and celibate. Will single and celibate be brutal? Yep. Will you feel like you're missing out? You bet. Will, uh, is it easy for me to say as a heterosexual man married? Yes. But I would argue... In each and every case of people that are here, we live with some sort of unfulfilled something. And that part of being summoned to follow Jesus is the recognition that we don't get it all now. But there is something coming that is more beautiful and worth it. And some people will hear that and just simply say, that cost is too great. I will not pay it. And that's your prerogative. But what we can't do is pretend like your desires aren't real, aren't pressing, aren't important to you and central to who you think you are, and that the church has done a horrible job discipling people who have this issue. So brothers and sisters, whether you're gay or straight or bisexual, we all find ourselves in a similar boat. All broken, all loved, and all summoned to abandon any other identity we could have to find our identity in this Jesus. And that as people who are in process, we believe he will guide us and grace us to become more and more like him. When and how, I can't say. I wish it were a formula, but it's not. In what specific circumstances does God justify divorce? Does God ever justify divorce? Never. God hates divorce. God permits divorce. He doesn't justify divorce. In fact, Jesus was asked about this. Now, we could do a whole teaching, and there's a place in Luke where we'll get to this. If you're part of our normal church community, we'll get to this. So I can't do a good job with it now, except to say this. In the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to have a provision in the law that if you were going to get a divorce, you had to write your wife, because it was only men divorcing women, a certificate of divorce. 
And the idea was, that the provision was, if she does something indecent and you divorce her, give her a certificate. The big debate was, what does something indecent mean? One school of thought said something indecent could be she burnt the food, she gained weight, she wasn't satisfying you, so you could write her a certificate of divorce for anything. Another school of thought said, no, something indecent means adultery. Jesus gets asked about this question in Matthew 19, and he sides with the school of thought that says adultery. So, when is divorce permissible? The death of a spouse, but that's not divorce, right? But it does allow you to be remarried. Number two, adultery. And number three, Paul seems in 1 Corinthians to open up the door to desertion. An unbelieving spouse leaves you. You are bound no longer. Now, if you're like me, what do we begin looking for? Loopholes. Right? Well, what's adultery? I mean, is adultery, what if you find somebody who's hooked on porn? Is that adultery? What if you find somebody who, um, who neglects you? Is that desertion? And so, brothers and sisters, we simply, we have to say two things. On the one hand, it's, it's way too easy an option for far too many believers of Jesus. It just is. And on the other hand, there's grace for everybody who falls short. But on the other hand, we compromise our witness to talk about other sexual issues. I mean, do you realize the reason we get so mocked for campaigning against same-sex marriage, gay marriage is going to destroy Christian marriage? Too late! Christians have destroyed Christian marriage. You understand this? So I just so disagree with our brothers and sisters who think that somehow the problem's out there. The problem is in here. We have ceased offering the world a compelling vision of the goodness of living life under the reign of Jesus. And instead, we just reflect the culture right back to itself. And they look at us and say, you don't even live what you teach. Why should I? Boom. My wife and I have been together for 12 years. We have always been very sexual, but over the past three years, she doesn't seem to be interested in intimacy and sex anymore. I have tried everything to get her interested, but she remains disinterested. I love her, but find myself starting to give up and lose interest in her and find myself looking at other women. I can't help it. What can I do? Okay, first of all, you can help it. That that doesn't fly. If she were in an automobile accident and paralyzed and could no longer fulfill you sexually, under God, you are called to be faithful to her. So, there is no, I can't help it. I get the disappointment. When my wife and I began to have children, we had the following conversation. You don't seem as frisky anymore. Yeah, I'm exhausted. You don't seem as frisky anymore. Yeah, I have to feed. My breasts are used used for milk not for your enjoyment any longer you know what I mean I mean it was the craziest thing and and now we have three little kids I'm just being real and and we have three little kids and man it's eight o'clock and we are toast now some of my empty nesters have emailed me and said you know it gets so much better great I cannot wait till we're empty nesters 
But we got a four-year-old little dude, an eight-year-old little girl, a 10-year-old wild man. And I'm telling you what, wife and I get to eight o'clock and it's just hard enough to get to 9.30 awake. Is that horrible? No, I like the little critters we got. But as a guy... But no, 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 honestly, is, as a guy, is it disappointing? Absolutely it's disappointing. I love to have sex every single day with her. Every single day. She, so part of the issue is you can't help it. She, I'm sure she would too. The empty nesters just rebuke me too all the time. It's not that bad, come on. I had one couple email me, and they were awesome. And they just said, you know, we have, I've learned to have sex every day with my husband. And I just wanted to hit forward to my sweet wife. And, and <laughs> so my point is this. Anywhere from 7 to 12 years, you get restless. This, very specifically, you're looking at your wife and say, well, why aren't you as interested anymore? Well, I'd have a bunch of questions. Have, do you have children uh, is she in the middle of some hormonal change? Seriously. Um, is a lifestyle change to the place where she doesn't have the kind of time or energy? Um, has anything happened in your relationship that has caused her not to trust you? Um, when you? When you say, and again, I'm going to talk to you as the dude. Because if you love her as Christ loved the church, I don't see an out clause on that. You don't get the right to go exploring if she's not meeting your sexual needs. Have you talked to her about it? You say you've tried everything to get her interested. Well, is that just in the bedroom? Or do you serve her and romance her? Do you still date her after 12 years? Now, you may be going, yeah, I do all of that, and she's still not interested. Okay. Then God is calling you to be faithful for this season of your life to a wife who isn't interested in you. Welcome to the club. <laughs> right? Right? Our sex drives are really different. When we, were, when we were newly married, before kids, it was awesome. When you threw kids in and mortgages and work and pressure and stress, it becomes a lot harder. Empty nesters tell me it gets better. I can't wait. But for this season, I'm with you, bro. But I don't get, I don't get the opportunity to wander simply because I don't have sex as much as she wants to. Or as I want to. <laughs> I'm a young woman who has been sexually promiscuous and I'm now in my journey of brokenness to return to God in the promise of redemption. Oh, I'm so proud of you. First of all, that's a beautiful way to say that. That is a beautiful, welcome to the club. That's, that's so many of us here. I am scared that I will never find a man to love me in my transgressions, someone who will be able to see past my foxes. It's a reference in the poem to issues that plague a relationship. What is a prayer I can pray to be freed from this condemnation? Come back next week. That is my wife and I's story. That is our story. And you have to find a guy who... And I get, I get questions a lot from guys who say, well, my, my fiancé is not a virgin, I'm a virgin, I don't know that I can marry her. Okay. But are you Mr. Pure? I mean, is your virginity technical in nature that you've done everything else but? 
Are you enslaved to porn? Have your images of women been formed and shaped by impossible images? I mean, ladies, you need to find a dude who is in touch with his brokenness and journey to redemption too. And if a man will hold that against you, then he is not a man you should be with. End of story. After eight years, I only have a couple more and then we'll get to yours. After eight years in an abusive relationship, after eight years in an abusive relationship, eight years, I'm so sorry to hear that. And at the same time, I wonder why you stayed for eight years. Were you lied to by some well-meaning Christian that said, well, your duty is to stay in an abusive relationship? I don't know, but it's not your duty. After eight years in an abusive relationship, I left feeling uncomfortable around and even slightly fearful of men. I bet. During those eight years, all I could think of uh, about was getting out. Yet God is now putting in my heart the vision of a loving, committed relationship. Hallelujah. That's awesome. Is there biblical advice you can give me about how I can overcome the sense of fear? And what would you recommend as a safe way to begin to meet men in a non-threatening way? Oh my goodness. First of all, I'm so sorry that you even have to ask this question. You are a whole person, and that abuse, however it was, violated you in multiple ways. It could be physical, and there's physical healing that needs. It could be emotional. Certainly it is that, and emotional healing needs to take place. It could be spiritual, that the enemy has kind of come in through that abuse and sits uh, accusing you and condemning you so that you think your identity is victim and not disciple. I mean, who knows? And I'm no expert on this. We have counselors that are sitting in this room who would be so much better equipped than I. So I would simply say this. Would you, whoever asked this question, if you're in this room, would you come talk to me and allow me to introduce you to one of those people? Because I do believe it's possible for you to trust guys again. I do believe, and I think the hunger you're feeling for a committed relationship is awesome. And I do think there are non-threatening ways. I think the stigma of online dating is over in our world. I really do. I really do. And perhaps something like that, a Christian site would allow you to slowly work your way into a relationship. There are great singles communities at different churches. We don't have a thriving singles community. One of the reasons, well, we, we have a thriving singles community, but one of the reasons we don't have a specific ministry towards single people is that I don't, I don't personally think Uh, that dividing people by marital status is the healthiest thing, but there are some single, uh, there's some churches that have thriving singles ministries. Uh, And I would encourage you to check those out. But the big deal is, would you come talk to me and allow me to introduce you to someone who can better answer this question? And then lastly, if you know a baby will be born with a lot of disabilities, is it okay to abort it? It's not. I'll take it. No, no, no. The, the offer always stands. And I mean it, guys. I, I pray that someone would take us up on it so they can see we're serious. But if you're ever in a situation where you are choosing between aborting or keeping the baby, and the reason you don't want to keep the child is because you're not able to take care of it, we will take it so you don't have to live with the pain of that choice. 
We just will. And we're not going to shame you. We're not going to condemn you. In fact, it's the most courageous choice you can make is to live publicly for nine months with evidence that you made a mistake and yet thinking that even disabled infants have value. I have one of those and his life has made ours immeasurably greater. And so I beg you, I implore you to let the community of God be with you in this. Guys, the time for secrets is over. May we please be a church that allows people to be sinners in process. And if you're willing to come out of hiding, we'll meet you there. And it doesn't matter with what issue. If you're here and you're gay and you're terrified, there's a place for you. There just is. If you're divorced inappropriately, there's a place for you. If you're pregnant and horrified, there's a place for you. Okay. Hmm. Now let's do 25 or so minutes of whatever questions you have texted in, like those were the light ones. A lot of people tell me I'm pretty. Well, that must be nice. I don't, <laughs> I don't get that. But I always compare myself to prettier people making me feel ugly as hell. How can I accept myself and see myself the way others do? How can I stop hating myself over such a small, stupid thing? First of all, thank you for asking that question. Secondly, you've already identified it. What, what is the demonic word in that question? What is it? Comparing. The horrible thing about human beings is that there's always going to be someone better than you. You're a great athlete, there's always someone better. You're pretty, there's always someone prettier. You're smart, there's always someone smarter. So there comes a point in time when you actually have to rest in the identity you've been given. Now the question is, how do I do that? If you were here several weeks ago, we talked about body image, and I would refer you to that conversation. We spent a lot of time on it. But the big deal is this. I think you're asking, well, hating yourself because of this. That is nothing but the enemy whispering to you. You are in the middle of a spiritual battle. This isn't about self-esteem. This isn't about hating yourself. You are being lied to left and right. And the answer isn't going to be, well, I just need to listen to these people as opposed to these people. No, the issue is actually going to be beginning to rest in the fact that you are created. The scriptures say in Jesus, we're works of art that you have a purpose, and that you will be loved even if you didn't feel like you were pretty. Now, there's much more to say than that, but that is a form of slavery we want to pray and counsel and be with you in because all that does is get worse the older you get. See, nobody here gets less beautiful. We just swallow more and more lies about what beauty is. So when you look at a couple that's been married 65 years and they're in their 80s, if you don't see that as beautiful, something wrong with your definition of beauty. 
right? When you look at people and all you measure is attractiveness, see, that's not beauty. Beauty is so much more profound than attractiveness. So our definitions of beauty have to change. I don't know that I've answered your question except to say this is a battle worth fighting. And there's absolute hating yourself, shaming yourself, and comparing yourself guaranteed to lose every single time. We have to move the conversation to something different entirely. So talk to me about that if you'd like to. Next. Can a person struggling with same-sex attraction but abstinent serve in all ministries? That's a great question. Now, I don't know. Let me say this. I'm going to answer for Mike. I'm not going to answer for Evie Free Fullerton, okay? Look at me. <laughs> One of the things we, we are doing at the elder level is we're identifying big conversations we need to have. So I'm speaking as Mike. I'm not speaking as senior pastor. I'm not speaking for Evie Free. Got it? I think people who are fighting the good fight should serve everywhere because that's the only kind of people they turn out to be. So if somebody came up to me and said, hey, I'm struggling, but this is submitted to Jesus. Great, I'm struggling too, and this is submitted to Jesus. So I would never disqualify somebody if they were living with desires that were in submission to Jesus. End of story. End of story. People may disagree with that, all right? So this is just Mike over here talking, okay? We'll have a more formal conversation as, as, as a group of elders. We wrestle through some of these issues. Next. I feel like my struggle with lust is tied to loneliness. Yes. If I'm feeling lonely, satisfying my lust makes me almost feel fulfilled, at least momentarily, right? That burst of, of dopamine. Remember we talked about that. That burst of release. For that moment, I don't feel so empty, How do I channel that into something else? Oh, what a brilliant question. And do you see the genius of the question? The genius of the question wasn't, how do I stop lusting? The genius of the question was, how do I channel all of that energy into something else? So you've already answered it. Jesus never calls you to give up something without giving you something in return. Now, the something he gives you may not be as momentarily awesome. Right, So, in the struggle with pornography, there is a hit. There is, um, I mean, people, people will say things like, premarital sex doesn't feel good. And I just want to go, I bet a lot of our kids would disagree with that. <laughs> right? I mean, the issue isn't, does it feel good? The issue is, where does it lead you? And that lust actually makes you lonelier. See, the lie is, It satisfies. And certainly, momentarily, perhaps it does. But lust is the usurping of what brings two people together into further separation and aloneness. And it actually makes loneliness worse. So in my battle with lust, I had a crew of people that walked with me in it. The biggest reason I did that is so I didn't, I realized there were other people that struggled too, that it wasn't just me battling by myself. You have three options when it comes to unfulfilled desires. Go for it, pretend, and I didn't give you the third one, so I need to do that. Be alive and thirsty. Don't run, don't pretend, but actually use. That's what, if you ever fast, 
Like if you've heard of the spiritual discipline of fasting, what fasting is is taking away food or something and using the hunger to direct you to pray. So that loneliness can actually be channeled into an intimate relationship with God that is far richer than what you'd have if you just gave in momentarily. And then the last thing I would simply say is this. We truly don't understand what community looks like. Community for many of us, at least in a Christian sense, is just showing up at a teaching and worship event once a week in a church. And I just want to say it's far deeper and richer than that. There should be people that you can call at two in the morning and say, you know what, I am totally lonely and I want to binge. And if you don't have those people, come talk to me. I'll make sure you get one, okay? Next. Mike, hi there. (laughs) But I'm in my 40s and don't see myself being married soon. What do I do with sexual desires? If being in your 20s is hard, imagine being in your 40s. (sighs) Yeah. I know. So my sob story about 29 isn't going to cut it with you. In your 40s. I, I had an email exchange uh, with somebody who, who just simply said, you know what? At some point, I just think God's teaching on this is unrealistic for our world, and I'm going to abandon it. I believe I'll be forgiven in Jesus, and I'm just going to start sleeping around. And isn't that an attractive option for you in, the, in your 40s? Right? There's nothing I wouldn't say to you in your 40s that I wouldn't say to you in your 20s or your 30s, right? It's the same battle, the same issue. You have unfulfilled desires. You don't see yourself being married soon. What do you do with those? On the one hand, I wish there was a, hey, once you hit 40, you're totally off the hook. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? If Jesus just said, you know what, man, you're right. It's so lame. Just go for it. I've tried to find that in there, and I haven't. And so I'd give the same counsel we gave earlier in the Q&A, and I hate it for you. I hate it. I get it. I mean, and I don't get it. Because the lie or the temptation would be to simply believe that you are missing out on something so fundamental that your life will be so dramatically impoverished, you'll look back and regret not having sex. And we just want to hold out the possibility that it's the reverse that's true. And I know it's easy for me to say, I get it. And I'm sorry that you're in this situation. But I don't see an escape clause in any of this. I see grace. And I see truth. And I see hope. But I also see the cost of living that way. And I'm sorry for you. I am sorry. I wish that wasn't true. But I think it is. Next. I like this guy. Awesome. But he is all I can think about and is, and... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, hey, let me ask you a question. Kids, what does SMH stand for? What? Shake my head. Okay, can some of you be on my text team and just interpret some of this stuff for me? Okay, put that back up. Okay, I don't know what to do. I know it's bad, but he is a Christian, and I really like him. 
Now, I'm guessing this is a woman in her 70s. So if I turn towards, subliminally towards the high school students, I don't know why. Ladies, where are you going? All right, see you later. All right, put, that, put the question back up there. Okay, I'm not sure what you're asking. Are you asking, he's, he's all I can think about and I don't know what to do. Okay, well, first of all, Man, being attracted to this guy who's a Christian, well, that's a good thing, right? There's nothing bad about that. But I do know, and please do not allow me to stereotype as I stereotype. I do know that there is a tendency among people in their teens to become infatuated with being infatuated and to invent in their minds something that doesn't actually exist And to be so taken with the idea of a person that the reality could never measure up. And at that point, he's all I could think about isn't so much about the guy, it's about you. And so my encouragement to you is to know that odds are next year you'll feel this way about a different guy, (laughs) right? And that gradually, that homing radar, if you temper it with wisdom and patience, will actually lead you to a guy who is worth such devotion. Next question. Many people don't believe what the, that the Bible is any kind of authority on sexuality. Totally. Right? And this is where I don't get people who, for instance, in, in, in the sexuality debate... I read so many people who take some verses that very clearly speak about sexuality and they do, they do all of these gymnastics to get it, to try to get it to say that it doesn't say what it plainly says. And at that point, I just want to ask those people, well, why are you even messing with it? I mean, just get rid of the scripture. I mean, why, why try to just get rid of it? I mean, I love the question. Yes. Some people say, that is totally ridiculous, repressive, oppressive, and there's no way. I think that's a more intellectually honest answer than trying to twist some of this stuff. What are the reasons homosexuality is wrong that are not based on the Bible? Now that's a great question. It is very interesting because the... the, the, I don't know that I find all of these persuasive. Some will say, well, procreation. Right? Let's take the evolutionary line and say that obviously we need to procreate and homosexuality robs uh, the sex act of that potential. Now the counter is, well, we see it in animals. And so it's not, you know... Evidently, it evolved as something, so there's some purpose to it. But I'm just saying that's one argument, is the procreation argument. The other argument is just the natural, it just, you look at a naked guy, and you look at a naked girl, and it seems like they fit together. And so you would argue from just kind of natural law, for not only creation sense, but simple biology that says, this is what belongs together, and two men or two women um, doesn't fit that. The third thing that some people argue is that the incidences of depression, of suicide, of STDs uh, among the gay and lesbian community is much higher 
than um, among those in the, um, on the heterosexual community, so some will make that argument. Now, there are all kinds of counters to this. Do you understand this? I'm just saying what some people argue, and there are all kinds of counters that people will say to these things, but that's kind of the argument you'd make. There, is a, there, there are people that argue that marriage is central to civilization because marriage is the best place to raise children, and marriage biologically and culturally has always been defined as a man and a woman. And so that any other deviation from that norm is actually a threat to the fabric of society. So these are the kinds of arguments that people would make against homosexuality from a non-biblical point of view. All right, that's all I'll say about that. Said Forrest Gump. Not a question, but a comment. See, here you go. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. These are the people that haunt me. (laughs) My husband and I have been married 30 plus years and sex is way better, easier, more relaxed and enjoyable now than in the first 15. It's so worth it to be a student of your spouse and continue learning how to please each other, being tired or even bored or enemies of sexual intimacy. We're praying for our younger couples. Pray for us! (laughs) Hey, hey, you know what? That's great news. That's great news. I remember, I, so I worked at EV Free Fullerton years ago as a sports ministries director. And there was this, the couple on staff, and, and I won't say who they were. They're not on staff anymore. And, and they weren't two terribly attractive people. And, and, I mean, I'm just, you wouldn't look at them and say, boy, but they're sizzle there, you know. And, and I asked him, and I was in the midst of the single journey. I was in the midst of the single journey. And, and so I said, so, so how's your sex life? You know, just, I did. I just asked him. And, and, he, and he said, and it was beautiful. He said, I'm surprised the roof stays on our house. <laughs> and, and that's that comment. That's awesome. So keep telling us that we can outlast the first 15 years. Because it's been awesome. The kids are horrible. Next. Modesty in regards to clothing. Please share your thoughts as to why that is important. As a leader in our youth group, I feel that no matter how hard I try, that message falls on deaf ears. Okay, ladies. As a brother from another mother, finish dressing before you come to church. Okay, now, hold on. Hold on. Here's why. Here's why. Okay, here's why. Things Now, listen, okay, digression and then point coming. I have an eight-year-old little girl. We don't let her wear a bikini like all of her friends. She says, well, why come I can't wear a bikini? I tell her because the most important things we protect. And your body isn't something to show off your body is something to protect. Now, she doesn't get this yet, but we talked about all the different things that you protect because they're so valuable. Ladies, you have been so tragically lied to. And guys, we are fully complicit. See, when guys say, hey, ladies, you caused me to stumble, no. A lady doesn't cause you to stumble. You cause you to stumble. Right? So ladies, this isn't about protecting us, although there is an element to it. 
Ladies, this is really about declaring what you think of yourself. Are you an object to be consumed? Or are you worth the devotion that would come from a man who would say, I will not look at any other body than yours for the rest of my life. See, I think that kind of devotion that happens in a marriage is totally worth waiting for. And so I would just simply say, ladies, no guilt, no shame, I mean, nothing, come on. But in the same way I would say to my little girl, you're much more valuable than that. And I realize, oh my goodness, the cut, I mean, you can hardly go into stores and not have things like tailored specifically to make you look sexy. And hallelujah, we're big fans of sexy in this place, all right? Yeah, sexy never left, so we're not bringing it back is what we're saying. (laughs) So this isn't about whether or not you're beautiful. This is because you're beautiful and because you're of immeasurable worth. Do not cultivate yourself as an object for consumption, but rather make the guys work. And what I mean by that is this. Ladies, you cannot appreciate how visual we are. And you cannot appreciate the judgments we subconsciously make because we're so visual. And so I would just simply say, as a brother to a bunch of sisters, you're worth more. You're simply worth more. You're not an object for consumption. You are of immeasurable worth. And so the reason modesty is important isn't because we're a bunch of old-fashioned people. It's because your beauty is worth that much. Next. I'm a 42-year-old woman that has been married for 15 years. I would like to have sex with my husband at least three to four times a week. He only wants it once a week. All I have ever wanted is to feel sexy and desirable, but I've never really felt that from him. I feel so dissatisfied, like I've been ripped off. It has been a source of frustration and sorrow. We waited until we were married to have sex. There is no unfaithfulness, nor is there any porn issue. I don't know how to get him to want me more. First of all, thank you for being so honest. Secondly, I think you would be surprised at how many people find themselves in that same place, whether it's the man wanting more or the woman wanting more. Thirdly, your desire to be desired is a fine thing, and that's not a bad, shameful thing. I think that's the way God wired us, to want to be wanted. Lastly, if you are not in counseling, please think about it. And the reason I would simply, and maybe you already are, the reason I would say is that this This will lead, and maybe already has, to deep resentment and bitterness. And there may not be unfaithfulness, but there will be hurt, anger, betrayal. And that will build a wall that will simply be impossible to overcome if you let this sit there. What you can't do, and this is to the men and to the women, is to force your spouse to be more like you. When I was in counseling, I was, I, years ago I was in the middle of just a huge depression. I went to counseling. My counselor one day said, tell me all the things you don't like about your wife. 
Now, once you're married for a while, you get a list. <laughs> and so I went, Rup. here are the things I would change. He said, okay, so being married means that even if none of those things ever change, you love her and adore her and delight in her as she is. I said, well, that's just impossible. He said, well, no, that's actually the covenant of marriage, for better or worse, rich or poor. So even when I'm disappointed, yep. Even when I'm frustrated, yep. He said something that forever changed the way I relate to my wife. And this perhaps may speak a word of encouragement to you. When you meet my sweetie, she's not, she's steady. She's disciplined. She's no nonsense. She calls me the hot air balloon and she calls herself the anchor, right? I'm nuts and spontaneous and I love breaking out into Gangnam style dances with my children in the middle of Walmart while she is horrified and goes about the business of actually purchasing things. My wife, my wife, is beautiful. And there came a point in our marriage where I spent a lot of time trying to get her to be more like me. Well, honey, how come you don't celebrate so much? How come you're not as outwardly excited as I am? And here's what my counselor said. My wife grew up in a home where she was overlooked. You have lots of color. Don't shame her because she doesn't have as much. And that changed my marriage. Young lady, 42, disappointed in her sex life. What would I say? Are you called to be faithful? Yes. Are you called to love? Yes. Is it disappointing? Yes. I'm so sorry that, you're, that you feel unloved and unwanted. My guess is, the sex issue is just a symptom of something deeper. And it's that deeper issue that has to be addressed. And the sex thing will take care of itself. I can't give any more advice beyond, can we please begin a conversation to get the two of you talking about this with a third party to help? Because that disappointment, if not tended to, will lead you into very, very destructive places. All right, you got room for one more? How are we doing, okay? We laugh, we cry, we sweat. <laughs> when do you know that you are ready as a couple to get married? Particularly, what are the spiritual signs that should be there in the relationship to show you you are meant to be as a permanent couple? Oh, boy, some of you are going to dislike me right now. Okay? You're never ready. I'm just saying. Now... Having said that, you can be more unready. <laughs> so, things that help you to be <laughs> less unready, but still fundamentally... Here, here's what you don't know about marriage. Romance can't carry you. Attraction can't carry you. Only your commitment will carry you. That's it. And so I tell people, you can go through all the premarital counseling... And I can't tell you whether or not you're going to stay married because it is whether or not you meant it when you said for better or worse, richer and poor, and that Jesus was the center of your relationship. If you meant it, you'll stay married. 
If you didn't, you won't. And no amount of counseling will help you. So on the one hand, I would say, if you're looking for a mystical written in the clouds that says this is the time, you will never find it. But there are ways to prepare so that the road is less bumpy. The 42-year-old lady who said she waited shows that God doesn't operate according to formulas. Because I would guess, and I felt this way too, because I waited, I should have a great sex life once I'm married. God owes me a great sex life once I'm married. (laughs) Right? And the, the giggles, that's just affirmation of what I'm saying. And so God doesn't always do that. And we resent him for it. Why did I wait and settle for this? Well, if the only reason you waited was ultimately out of your own self-interest, then yeah, I totally get the frustration. Oh, I'm editing, editing, editing. Okay, so what are we talking about? Oh, how do you know when you're ready? Okay, sorry. So much going on. So, um, time, restraint, and community. How about that? The Bible doesn't give a lot of dating advice, but it teaches us to live by wisdom. So, are you both believers in Jesus? Are you both believers in Jesus with the same intensity? Do you share the same vision of life under the good rule and reign of Jesus? Do you share a similar calling? Uh, do you come from similar backgrounds? Have you made peace with stuff from your past? Have you dated in a way that allows you to truly know each other and not as just captured by infatuation, romance, and the sexual part of relationship? Do other people affirm you together and the people who know you best look at you and say, you're actually a better person by being with this person? Have you learned to honor Christ and honor each other in your relationship? If the answers to those kinds of questions are yes, then I would say, get married. And by the way, young people, don't be engaged for a year. That's the dumbest thing ever. When you decide to get married, look at me. Do not spend $50,000 on a dumb flipping wedding, okay? Get married. When you decide to get married, get married. Because I tell you what, when, when my wife and I, when I asked her and she said yes, the battle became brutal. It was hard before, but now I'm going to marry her. So what's, what's a piece of paper going to do? I mean, five weeks from now, we're going to be standing. I mean, all of the justifications. We were engaged for five weeks. Yeah. Yep. Our wedding cost $900. We surprised, we surprised our college group. I was a college pastor. We flew out our families. And we told our college group, we met on Sunday nights. We said, hey, make sure you don't miss July 9th. Bring $2 and wear warm clothing. Now, this was just to throw them off. They showed up and they watched us get married. Now, let me ask you, do I... Did I miss the chicken dance? Did I miss spending thousands of dollars to give people a choice of chicken and steak? I didn't. And my wife will tell you. You know, because I get it that little girls dream of that day. But ladies, dream of what follows. Don't, don't, don't obsess 
over a ceremony that you'll watch every now and again. Obsess about the kind of relationship that follows a ceremony. Now, some of you are like, nope, I'm going to spend 30 grand. I don't care. My dad's going to pay for it, and I've got it all picked out from my bridal magazines, and I don't care. (laughs) Okay, you're dumb. I don't care either. (laughs) I'm just saying. Ask dad to put that in a mutual fund so you can buy a house someday. And we'll marry you right here. All right. Filters are off. Let's pray. Okay, brothers and sisters. I never walk off of this stage feeling good. Never. No, no, no. Listen. I feel totally inadequate for some of these questions. How do you talk to a guy who's single in his 40s wrestling with sexual desire? Every answer I give just feels like, ah, it's Christianese. They've heard it a thousand times. No, listen to me. Don't rebuke me, crying out loud. (laughs) You know, or the woman in the difficult marriage, or the kids that are just like, oh my goodness, I can barely get through a day without looking at porn. I I don't want the last word ever to be law. I want the last word to be grace. It is his kindness that leads us to repentance. Brothers and sisters, we want to end the way we started. All of us have fallen short. And all of us are disappointed and broken in one way or another. And so I just proclaim the only thing I have to give. The risen Jesus gives his spirit to all of those who will ask. And that, that is what makes the difference. That is what takes this out of the realm of morality and religion. We don't do this to please God. We do it because we've already been adopted into his family. And what I want for you is just to hunger for the good stuff and not settle for the counterfeits. I don't want you to leave here feeling condemned. And that's always my fear. You don't need more condemnation. What you need is the deep assurance that God is for you. That in Jesus, you're reconciled to him. And there is no more condemnation. But there is the invitation to leave the darkness and step out into the light. And we want to be truthful about that. And the cost that comes with it. So brothers and sisters, for all of the ways I fall short, I'm sorry. For all of the ways that I don't have better answers, I'm sorry. I only know to give what I myself have received. Grace and truth, the power of the Spirit in a humble heart. And my hope for you is that that becomes enough. And that becomes more than enough. So Lord Jesus, my heart breaks for my brothers and my sisters. Lord, behind the faces sit such deep and profound stories. Behind the questions sit immense amounts of pain. And Father, I simply don't have what your people need. And so I boast of your goodness and I boast of your grace and I ask you to draw near to the brokenhearted right now and to breathe on the lonely and the single and the married and the lonely 
I pray you would breathe hope and grace, that you would breathe peace, and that following you is worth it regardless of cost. And so Jesus, we pray your healing and your restoration for the simple sake of your great love for your people. And so God set us free. We pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Stand up. Bless you. I want to pray our our usual blessing over you, care team. Would you join me up front and would you allow us to help to talk? Um, And then next week, I'll teach for maybe 20 minutes. Uh, If my wife is still game, she will share. And then we're just going to do some praying and it will go as long as it needs to, okay? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you, high school kids. (laughs) And give you peace. Go in grace and truth, and we will see you next week. Thank you guys very, very much. All right, prayer team, come on down.